0: Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for how we've rejoiced in your presence thus far. We pray now, as we open your word, that you will continue to empower us, convict us, and that you will be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I invite you to take your study guides, you have them inside your bulletins. We are continuing the study on our, our Present Truth series. If you haven't been with us before, uh, we had started our Present Truth and uh, Three Angels Message series back in October. Uh, this is based on the book titled, The Present Truth and the Three Angels Messages, uh, written by, by me. And, uh, and so we are actually, this is the 10th message in the series. Thus far, we have covered the first angel's message. In the first nine parts of the series, the first angel's message today, we're starting on the second angel's message. And so this is the first part of a four-part series on the second angel's message. And the title of our message today is Babylon, Babylon is Fallen. Babylon is fallen. Um, again, for those of you who have not been here before, you'll find the uh, words that go inside your blanks will be underlined on the screen. Uh, I've been here, uh, my family and I, we've been here in the state of Tennessee for close to 15 years. And um, we live now, uh, as you know, th- this part of Tennessee uh, uh, is part of what's called Tornado Alley. Tornado Alley. You know, I remember when we lived up in Pennsylvania, and I used to look at the news reports when there were tornadoes in this part of the, of the country, and I would always say, why would anybody live in those areas? I would move out. And here I am now, living in what's called Tornado Alley. And you know, the one I time here, we come, we've come to experience... Uh, some of the devastation caused by tornadoes. You remember back in 2020, we had some tornadoes in this area. And right here in Nashville, a lot of destruction. And uh, we were in Chattanooga during 2010 during uh, a series of tornadoes that happened, uh, I think it was a Friday into Sabbath, and it was terrible. Um, and destruction everywhere on both sides. We're thankful that God has kept us safe and our home safe. And we're thankful for it. Uh, weather prediction technology. You know that uh, when there are tornadoes possible, we get a news alert, right? The weather alert day, and the news is always telling us it's possible tornadoes, that kind of thing. When there are tornado warnings, yeah, we get, I don't know if you have an app, but we have an app on our phone. We get tornado warnings, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, hide, go, get into your places, get into your safe place, if you will, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, i become a bit passionate about that. Maybe over, uh, my family says I'm overtly passionate when uh, tornado out warnings come. There's Rihanna shaking her head because I get nervous. I get anxious when there are tornado warnings because I've seen close by the destruction that tornadoes have caused. And so I, I, I get panicky. I get, listen, let's get in our safe places. Let's get in there on our. And, 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 and they're like, come on, you know, it's okay. And my, of course, my, my wife is a bit. um. Uh, claustrophobic and she doesn't want to get into her closet or anything so you know in, in spite of weather prediction technology some people ignore warnings they ignore warnings and uh, here was a lady doctor Laura Meyer she a um, director and senior research scientist for the Center for advanced public safety and she studied warnings and how people react to them this is what she said people have a tendency to not want to change plans or their behavior for weather unless they fa- they're fairly sure the weather's going to affect them or impact them. Now, you know, when you think about tornadoes, tornadoes are very unpredictable. You don't know exactly what track they're going to take. So this is why I get nervous. Now, when it's hurricanes, now hurricanes, It's easier to predict, although sometimes they take a different track, but hurricanes are big, so you're fairly sure, well, you know, it's coming this way, maybe I need to make preparations. And even then, some people choose not to make preparations. Well, tornadoes is different, you know, you don't even know, but again, a lot of people just ignore warnings. Well, when we think about the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, and we analyze them, we realize that they are messages of warning. Their are message of a warning. God wants to prepare the world because a storm is coming upon our world and that's going to affect everybody no matter where you are. And God wants to provide a way that, 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 that you're not deceived, that you can be ready to meet Jesus when he comes in the clouds of heaven. Therefore, the messages of the re-angels' messages of Revelation 14 are present truth. They are what? Present, present truth. truth. These are, this is the truth that applies to this time that we're living in present truth. And the second angel's message says Babylon is fallen. So what is Babylon? What is Babylon and what does the fall of the ancient city of Babylon has to do with us today? And the final message of preparation. Here's a message Revelation fourteen eight. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. I will tell you, this, this idea that Babylon is fallen is something that caused me a lot of, um, I was stuck with this. You know, I always, um, I, 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 I could see and understand what the first angel was all about, although in the process of writing this book, I, you know, my God expanded things and I was able to you know, even break it down even more, but but I could understand that. And, and the third angel's message, the same thing, the mark of the beast. But when it comes to the second one, I was stuck. Because I, I thought, well, what does this Babylon, fa- yeah, Babylon fell, you know, Persia conquered Babylon in history. What does that have to do with us? And I realized that I needed to, to go deeper. I remember, I remember praying over this when when I was getting close to to finishing the first angel in the manuscript, and now I'm going to start with the second. I pray, God, Lord, I, I don't know what to do here. And God said, you, you need to go deep. And it's, it's interesting how God works, because when, it, when it's all said and done, after that, if you read the book, you'll know that the message, uh, the chapter on the second angel's message is actually the longest chapter in the book, because God started to show some things and I realized we need to go to the beginning. I needed to go to the beginning in order to understand what Babylon's all about. We need to go to Genesis. Genesis now, the book of Genesis tells us that Babylon was the, one of the first cities ever built. Notice Genesis, chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was mighty, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord... And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kelne in the land of Shinar. So notice that Babel was one of the first cities ever built. Now, th- this word Babylon, when we think about Babylon, Babylon comes from this word Babel, which Babel means what? Confusion. Confusion. You know, that's, this is where... Why we, we call infants babies, right? Because they babble, because we can't understand them, and so there's confusion. So Babylon means confusion is derived from the word Babel. It's derived from the word Babel. Now, later on in chapter 11, we read about a story of confusion when, when the, the, in the Tower of Babel. Everybody was confused and went their own way. But now the Bible tells us clearly that God is not the author of confusion. You see it there, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion. So if God is not the author of confusion, the implication is that somebody else is. Now who is that somebody else? Satan, obviously, is the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. Satan is. Now I find it interesting, as you look in the Old Testament, that the prophet Isaiah actually identifies Lucifer, who becomes Satan, he identifies Lucifer with Babylon. Notice Revelation uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 12 through 14. It shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this Proverbs against the king of Babylon, Babylon. And say, notice verses 12 and 14, how you are fallen from heaven. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. For you have said into your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the uh, mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So notice Babylon is associated with Satan and how he accomplishes his purpose by confusing people. By confusing people. So from the very beginning, notice Babylon has been emblematic of unbelief and defiance against God. And it it's important that we see how this develops in the Old Testament so that we know how this applies to us in the book of Revelation. Babylon is emblematic of defiance against God, of unbelief. Now Babylon, of course, is that empire that conquered uh, the Jews. You remember, uh, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of God under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. So we know then that Babylon was the enemy of God's people, the enemy of God's people. So notice, it also symbolizes powers that oppress God's people. Now, this is important that that we mention that Babylon is no longer a city. The literal city of Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian, and the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah that it will never rise up again. It's where, you know, Iraq is right now, and and I remember hearing some rumblings when Saddam Hussein was around that he wanted to unearth the ruins of Babylon because he wanted to bring it to its glory, but God said, nope, it's not going to happen, and it didn't. But again, there's no city of Babylon, so so Babylon must be a symbol. Babylon must be a symbol. But now, uh, the the second angel's message says Babylon is fallen. Some manuscripts say it this way, Babylon the Great fell, it fell. And again, here's where I I found some trouble because, again, what does this have to do? If Babylon fell back back then uh, in the time of uh, the Medo-Persians, what does that have to do with us? And what I find interesting, as I looked into this, this word fallen in, the, uh, in Revelation 14 is actually in what's called the Greek aoris indicative active tense, which simply means that it's actually describing a future event. Right. Now, again, we, we translate it as is fallen, but is actually describing a future event. Notice, a future event is being described with the past tense. Babylon is falling, the language used by John, is one of certainty. Is one of what? Certainty. Certainty, As if saying Babylon looks strong and it seems like it's going to last forever. But don't worry, from God's perspective, she is done. Friends, that should give us some hope. Because a time is going to come when the enemies of God, when Babylon, when, 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 the, when, the <clears throat> when these forces that are described as the Antichrist, the little horn and, and, and those things that we're going to look into, it's going to seem like they're going to be strong, like they're going to win, like God's people are going to lose. But don't worry, from God's perspective, she's done. You can't see it yet, but she's done. It is a done deal. This is why John uses that word. It's falling. It doesn't seem like that to us, but God's going to take care of it she is done. But now, what is Babylon today? Who or what is Babylon today? Well, from what we can already gather, end time Babylon is a religious political power opposing God and oppressing his people. It's important that we understand that. The symbol of Babylon, what does this have to do with us in Revelation 14? It is a religious political power that opposes God and oppresses his people. Now, it's interesting that the early church, when, when, when the early church started um, in, in the New Testament, we see it there, certainly in the book of Revelation, the early church already was referring to Rome as Babylon. It referred to Rome as Babylon, and so we know that the Apostle John here in Revelation is probably doing the same thing. He's referring to Rome as Babylon. And we know that Babylon is mentioned a number of times in Revelation. Here is Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 5. Then one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, which sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit a fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Having in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so notice Babylon here is described as a woman. It's mentioned. Now, again, remember, as we gather what the, Old Te- the New Testament churches already do in referring to Rome as Babylon, and Babylon is described as a woman, the mother of harlots. And again, Revelation is a symbolic book, so we can gather that this woman is also a symbol. So, what does a woman symbolize in Bible prophecy? Somebody here, a church. The church. And, and, and this is not something that we only believe. There are many other denominations say believe the same thing. There's plenty of biblical evidence for this. Notice a few: Jeremiah chapter three, verse twenty. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. So here, uh, uh, God is speaking to his people, to the, to the children of Israel. He refers to them as a wife, a woman. Amos chapter 5, verse 2. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaking on her land. There is no one to raise her up. Again, the words spoken to the church, to God's people, the children of Israel, a virgin. Again, we see she is a woman. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So again, here God is speaking, or Paul, God is speaking through Paul to the church, the church of Corinth, Corinth, and again, refers to her in the state of a woman. So we can gather from that clearly then, a woman in Bible prophecy is a symbol of the church. So now, in the book of Revelation, as we've seen, Babylon is representative of a religious political system that defies God, confuses the world, and oppresses God's people. Therefore, Babylon is the enemy of God's people. Does that make sense? An enemy of God. As already mentioned, the early church was already referring to Rome as Babylon, so we can safely assume that John is doing the same thing. Furthermore, John describes Babylon as an impure woman, which represents an impure apostate church. So then we must ask the question, does history provide us with a religious political power, which in turn is also a church and with its base in Rome? Does history provide us with that? Well, I believe it does. As they say, out went pagan Rome, in came papal Rome. Now, we're we're going to embark here some of you of course you know if you've been in the church for a while or you read the book you understand that uh, uh, that this this Babylon uh, represents uh, and this little horn represents the same thing the beast of revelation 13 all represents the same thing it represents Rome it represents papal Rome it represents Roman Catholicism okay now again this is not something that we sort of invented, because uh, uh, scholars throughout the Protestant Reformation era, they all agreed the same thing. They all came to that conclusion. It is just now that we've become more politically correct that we can't say these things anymore. Right. And, and again, we must be uh, you know, clear here, we're, we're not here to bash anybody, certainly not to bash Roman Catholicism, but we must say the truth, friends, because it is there for a reason. And so, but why, 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 why do we come to this conclusion? Because the Bible provides us with characteristics, as we'll see, that leads us to make that conclusion. And so, in order to do that, we need to go to the book of Daniel. We're going to see some characteristics of Babylon, which is said as to be the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel, of course, is the sister book of Revelation, so if you're going to understand Revelation, you've got to understand Daniel. You've got to understand Daniel. And so, let's do a quick review If you read the book, I don't spend time in Daniel chapter 2, but since we're going to look at Daniel 7, it's important that that we do a quick review. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. God gives him this dream, but King uh, Nebuchadnezzar cannot remember, at least cannot remember the whole thing. And so he asks his astrologers and his uh, magicians and such, please tell me what the dream was and give me the interpretation. They couldn't. He gets mad, declares a death sentence. All the wise men were going to die, but Daniel comes and saves the day. God, Daniel prays God, uh, uh, reveals to him what the dream was and the interpretation. So the dream was about this huge image. different metals, the head of gold, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, is Babylon. Represents the kingdom of Babylon. And so, there you go, the head of gold. Then another kingdom would come, inferior to Babylon, represented by the chest and arms of silver. Silver is inferior to gold. Medo Persia was inferior to, to Babylon, but me- nonetheless, Medo Persia conquers Babylon. That's the second um, kingdom. Then you have the belly and the thighs of bra- uh, bronze, uh, the next kingdom, the third kingdom, Greece, that comes in and, dis- and takes over Medo Persia. And, and of course, that's under Alexander the Great. Then there's a fourth kingdom represented by the legs of iron that represents the iron monarchy of Rome, the Rome of the Caesars. And then we go down to the feet. The feet, there's a mixture of iron and clay and the ten toes. The ten toes represent those ten nations that divided Western Roman, uh, Western, the Western Roman Empire. Remember, Rome was not conquered by another kingdom. It divided from within. And the, the mixture of iron and clay is a symbol of the fact that they would try to unite through human efforts, but God said, no, just like iron does not mix with clay, they, were, they would not unite. And so this is what we find in Daniel 2. But, but God, what, what he does in prophecies, often he repeats himself, and when he repeats himself, he has additional details that he did not share before. So when we go to Daniel chapter 7, we see that. Now in Daniel chapter 7, it is Daniel who has division. And Daniel has a vision of four different beasts. As we see, these four beasts represent the same kingdoms that we saw in Daniel 2, but now he adds additional details. So Babylon is the first kingdom, represented by the lion with wings. Wings are a symbol of swiftness, of speed. And, of course, Babylon was fast. um, And King Nebuchadnezzar behind that, uh, it was given the heart of a man. um, But we know that it would not last forever, because another kingdom would come. And that is the kingdom of the bear. The bear also, by the way, just, just go back, because if you were to look at some of the ruins of Babylon, there's a fresco in the, um, in the British Museum that has uh, 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 Babylon there. Um, and the lion with wings was actually in part of their architecture. So it's a fitting symbol of Babylon. So is the bear, representing Medo-Persia. Now here, in, in Daniel 7, we see additional details. The bear is lopsided and has three ribs in his mouth. We don't see that uh, in Daniel chapter 2. Medo-Persia was a a combination of two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. Eventually, the Persians dominate the Medes. This is why it's lifted up on one side more than the other. When we see in Daniel chapter 8, we see the uh, the ram, the same thing happens. The ram has one horn uh, greater than the other. So that is the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the bear. But there comes another kingdom represents the kingdom of Greece, just like the belly and the thighs of bronze In in Daniel chapter 2, we have now a leopard. But here we have this leopard with four wings and four heads. Again, wings are a symbol of swiftness, of speed. Uh, The Greeks were very fast in conquering the then-known world in less than four years under Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great dies, doesn't leave an heir, so his kingdom is divided in four, hence the four heads. Again, we don't see that in Daniel 2, but we see it in Daniel 7 because God is adding more details. And then we have the fourth kingdom. Dreadful, exceedingly looking beast with iron teeth. In Daniel chapter 2, Rome was the legs of iron. And see, we see see the same thing here. It has iron teeth. So this beast is representative of Rome. Now, this beast has horns. How many horns does it have? It has ten horns. In Daniel chapter 2, the toes were ten. Representative of those ten nations that divided the Western Roman Empire. And now we see the same thing. But now here, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel... There's something about this beast that causes, you know, gets his attention. Now, when he, when he initially sees this beast, the beast already has ten horns. Now, if, if he already had ten horns, that means that Rome was already divided. The ten horns were already there. And then what happens? He sees a little horn coming up from them. And he thought that was something strange. And so we read here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, I was considering the horns, that is those ten horns... And there was another one, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So he, he, he thinks this is something strange, and he focuses on that. And what we see, Daniel describes this little horn, and he, and he, and he provides eight different characteristics that describe this little horn. How many characteristics? Amen. Eight characteristics. Now, when God does that, it's because God really wants to make sure that you understand who this is. He wants you to make sure, so he provides you with enough ammunition, as it were, for you to make the, make, make the determination. So let's, we, we need to look at these characteristics, all right? Because I, I said earlier that this represents the, the, the papal Rome or Roman Catholicism, but why do we come to that conclusion? Well, because of the characteristics. We're going to see if they fit. So let, let's list them first. Let's list these characteristics first. Number one, it comes up from the head of the fourth beast and from among the 10 horns. That's verse eight. Now who is that fourth beast? Who's that fourth beast? Rome, okay, I just wanna make sure you're paying attention. All right, number two, as the little horn rises, it destroys three of the 10 horns. That's verses eight and 24. Number three, the little horn has eyes like that of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words, verses 8, 11, and 25. My mouth speaking pompous words. It has eyes, and my mouth speaking pompous words. Number four, his appearance is greater than his fellows. So his his appearance is greater than the rest of the ten horns. Number five, it made war against the saints of the Most High and prevailed against them. Who are the saints of the Most High? God's people, right? God is the most high, so his saints are God's people. Number six, it shall be different from the other horns. So notice, not only in number four, it says he's greater, so he becomes greater, but he also is different in some way than the rest of the horns. That's number six, verse 24. It is different. Number seven, it shall intend to change times in law, that's verse 25, And finally, number eight, it has power for a limited time. That is, for a time, times and half of a time, and that is also verse 25. So those are the eight things that uh, Daniel points out. Now, we need to break these down in order for us to, you know, see if this all fits with what we know as papal Rome. Okay? All right, so let's break them down. Let's look at number one. It comes up. From the head of the fourth beast and from among the ten horns. So again, who is the, who is the fourth beast? Rome. Rome. So we know, we know that whoever this power is, it comes from Rome because Rome is the fourth beast. It comes from among the ten horns. Now, again, when Daniel sees the beast, the ten horns are already there in place. So that means that Rome was already divided. Now, this is a solid date in history. All you have to do is look back in history. And we know that, that Rome was divided in 476 A.D. All right, so this is a historical fact. You can look it up. So 476 A.D. is when Rome is divided. When when Daniel sees the beast, the ten horns are already there in place. Then sometime after, the little horn comes up. So whoever this little horn is, it's a a power that rises unopposed sometime after 476 A.D. Okay, now we're going to see in characteristic number two when that was. But so far, we know that it comes from Rome, and it comes from among those those ten horns. By the way, those horns are these nations that make up modern Europe. So whoever this power is, it's a power that's found in Europe that comes from Rome. Does that make sense? It's not difficult when we we look at this uh, one by one. All right, let's look at number two. As it rises, it destroys three of the horns. So you have the ten horns already in place. These ten nations are already in place. Sometime after this little horn comes up that comes from Rome, and as it comes up, destroys three. Now, notice there, it tells us among the principal obstructions, a little bit of background. Because remember, in Daniel chapter 2, the implication is that there will be an effort to unite these nations, but as iron does not mix with clay, God would not allow that. That was not going to happen. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't try. They tried. It. They did a number of things uh, to bring unity among them, and one of the things they did, history tells us that they is they seek the uh, help from the bishop of Rome. Uh, he, he, he was a, a church leader. Let's see if he can help in bringing unity to this to this whole thing between the ten nations. But unfortunately, uh, according to history, three of those uh, horns opposed the papacy, the papacy or, or the uh, bishop of Rome: the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Now let me see. Let me see uh, if if, if if somebody read the book, <laughs> right. so so why 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 did these nations oppose the papacy? Why did they oppose the papacy? All right, I'm not, you have to read the book again. Now, by the way, this is this is not something that's just in the book. I mean, you, it's it's in history. Um, the, these these tribes are were what it's called Aryan tribes. They're called what? Arian tribes. They, they teach Arianism, and Arianism is this, this belief that is actually prevalent in, in some denominations today that doesn't believe that Jesus is divine, right? You know that Jehovah Witnesses believe like that, right Mary? Yeah. And so, Um, Obviously, Roman Catholicism, as you know, believes in the Trinity. They believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A little bit, bit different than what we believe, but still believes in the Trinity. And so Jesus is divine. And so here comes this papacy in the Bishop of Rome into the mix here. We don't want anything to do with this guy. But they're the minority, so they have to be dealt with. And so what we see here is that the other nations and the papacy got together. And one by one, they got rid of these tribes. The Heruli were destroyed in 593 A.D., the Vandals in 534 A.D. Now, by 534, we have Justinian in the picture here, because in 533, Justinian had declared a pope the head of all churches. And so now he comes into the picture with his armies to try to destroy them. So the, so the Vandals are destroyed in 534 A.D. And finally, the Ostrogoths in 538 A.D. Now, 538 A.D. is an important date, because, again, now that the Ostrogoths are gone, now there's no opposition to the, the, the papal Rome, and now it rises unopposed, and as you see there, there now uh, this helped to spread the Orthodox Roman, Christi- uh, Roman Christianity. 538 A.D. Remember, the little horn comes up from Rome sometime after 476 A.D., when the ten horns are already in place. 538 A.D. obviously is after 476. So that's the date. So the first two... Characteristics fit because what we find is that Papal Rome rises from among the ten horns, comes from Rome, and it rise, as it rises, it destroys three of the horns: the Heruli, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths. And by 538 A.D., now it's unopposed. Remember that date, 538 A.D., because it's going to come up again. Okay, so the first two characteristics fit with Papal Rome. Let's look at number three. The little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, eyes are a symbol of intelligence in Scripture, conveys intelligence, rationality. So there is a, a, a man behind this power. There is a man behind this power. Now, again, if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, we know that the head of Roman Catholicism is who? Is the Pope, right? The Pope, obviously, a man. So a man leads this power. And hence, the eyes ah, that uh, show intelligence. Now, how about pompous words? We don't use that kind of language these days, right? Oh, what a pompous man you are, right? Now, we don't use that. But what does pompous words mean? Anybody know? Arrogance. Arrogance. Okay, I'll take that. Arrogance. Anybody else? Pompous words. We know, you know, the, the great thing about the Bible is that we we can let the Bible explain itself. What is it? Boastful. Oh, okay. Are er, you getting there? You're getting there. Let, let's, let's allow the Bible to interpret itself, right? So, in verse 25, we have the angel trying to explain to Daniel what this little horn is. And it says in verse 25 that he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So, pompous words are words that are spoken against the Most High. Who's the, Who's the most High? God. So, so, it's words spoken against God. Now, Uh, A word spoken against God can also be defined as, I heard it over here, blasphemy, blasphemy. Blasphemy. Now, Jesus was accused of blasphemy, wasn't he, uh, you know, notice blasphemy, the definition of blasphemy, the act of claiming the attributes of deity. Now, Jesus was accused of this, wasn't he? You may remember that Jesus, Jesus called himself the I Am, He called himself the son of God, and as the Jews heard him, they said, this guy is making blasphemy because he called himself God. Now, Jesus is God, so he wasn't committing blasphemy, but if I told you that I am God, Henry, uh, that would be blasphemous, right? Now, if you're you're familiar with Catholicism, and it's all throughout their writings, the Pope is considered the vicar of God. He calls himself the vicar of God. Now, this word vicar simply means the representative of God. Alright? Now Jesus told us in, in the Gospels that He was going to leave a, another comforter, someone who would be like Him, hence He is the representative of Jesus in the world. And who is that? Holy the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yeah. Yes, we know believe the Holy Spirit is God, it's part of the Trinity. So if if I call myself The vicar of God, the representative of God, when the Bible says it is the Holy Spirit who is God, who is a representative of God, I'm taking upon myself the attributes of God, hence his blasphemy. So the Pope calls himself the vicar of God, or the vicar of Jesus, and that's a blasphemous. And of course, Jesus was also accused of blasphemy because he went around and said, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews saw that, well... And surely enough, you no, know, they said, this guy committed blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. Now, that is true. But Jesus is God, so he could forgive sins. Yeah. But if I told you I forgive your sins, that would be a problem. Roman Catholicism, of course, teaches that, yes, you know, through the, uh, the Pope and down through his representatives, the, uh, the priests, they can forgive your sins. So, again, this is blasphemy. So it fits, friends. It fits with Roman Catholicism. Number four. Although it was little as compared to the other horns, it becomes greater. So a greater in influence. These are, remember, the horns are these nations, these are countries. Um, The little horn is a little country. Now, where is the seed of Papal Rome? What what is it called? The Vatican. The Vatican is the smallest city in the world, it's an independent city-state okay? Even though it's, it's in Italy and it's in Rome, the Vatican itself is its own city, has its own army, has its own ambassadors, etc. Cetera, et cetera, And so we know, of course, that the papacy is very powerful and influential in world affairs, okay? Remember uh, the paper, the Pope, Pope Francis, was it 2015 when he came to um, Congress, spoke to Congress, spoke to the United Nations? You know, he's the head of a church, but no, I never saw a head of any other church speaking to Congress, right? And Anytime something great happens in the world, everybody's interested to know what the Pope is going to say about that. So who, whether you're Catholic or not, he is very influential in world affairs. So notice that although he is small as compared to the other nations, he actually becomes great. And the fact that he is guilty of blasphemy, and as we'll see here later, tries to do away with God's law, certainly makes him more influential, becomes greater than the other nations. So... It fits with papal Rome. Number five, he makes war against the saints, and saints, of course, are God's people. This means that this power would be a persecuting power. The little horn is a persecuting power. Now, if if you're familiar with your history during the Dark Ages, you know that the Church, in this case, Roman Catholicism, was a persecuting power. It persecuted Protestants. Thousands were killed. You think about the Inquisition. you think about the massacre of Saint Bartholomew. You think about the 30 Years' War, where, where well, eight million people, both on Protestant and Catholic side, died as a result of this 30 Years' War, which was a highly a religious conflict. Pope Francis himself, if you remember a few years ago during the 500th anniversary of the, Rome, of the Protestant Reformation. Pope Francis issued an apology. He spoke about this, apologizing for the atrocities done by the church during the Dark Ages. So it's not something they're hiding. He acknowledges. He asked for apologies. And that's nice of him. But the reality is, history tells us this is a persecuting power. And although Pope Francis issued a letter of apology, this is going to happen again. So, listen, history repeats itself. So we know that The church, in this case, Roman Catholicism was a persecuting power. It's all through history, so it fits, doesn't it? Number six, the little horn is different from the other horn. So we saw earlier it was more influential, in that sense it's greater. This one's different. The other ten horns are political powers. Again, Rome is divided in 476 AD by these ten nations. These ten horns are political powers. Now... The Roman Catholicism, Papal Rome is also political, but it's also religious. The fact that it blasphemes, blasphemy is a a religious term. Okay, it has to do with religion. So we know then that this is a religious power as well. Hence, it's different. The other nations, the other powers are just political. This one's political and religious as well. So that means it's different. In that sense, it's different. So it fits, friends, it fits. Number seven, the little horn power will try to change the law of God. Now, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, are particularly referred to as the law of God. And according to Daniel, this power would do that. This power would seek to change God's law. Now, there is one commandment, and only one commandment, that has to do with time. Now, which commandment is that? The Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Now, let me share with you two statements. So that you don't say, you can't say, well, this is what Pastor Nelson is saying. just want to share two statements from the church itself that highlight the power that they believe, in this case, its head, the Pope has. So I got this from the book, The Message of Daniel by C. Mervyn Maxwell. But he quotes from Lucius Ferrari's Prompt Bibliotheca under the heading of uh, Papa II." It says a pope can modify divine law. Notice, the pope can uh, change what? Divine law. Since his power is not of man, but of God, and he acts as vice regent of God upon man. So a vice regent, again, another representative. Again, this is that blasphemous statement, right? Because he's calling himself the representative of God. But he can modify divine law. The Ten Commandments is divine law. So hence, he can change that if he sees fit according to their writings. From the Catechism, page 235, the Roman Pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility, so he calls this infallibility of changing things, in virtue of his office, when as supreme pastor and teacher of all faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith he proclaims by definite act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. So he can confirm, he can unconfirm he has that power. Now, again, one commandment that has to do with time, and that is the fourth commandment. Now, this is important because, as you know, the majority of Christians today keep what day as a day of worship? They keep Sunday. All right, so there's a reason for that. There is a reason for that. Now, last, in our last presentation, we already talked about the Sabbath. We talked about the law. That's also part of the first angel's message. So we understand that there is, God expects us to keep his law because we love him. And, of course, the fourth commandment is part of that law. We keep the Sabbath because we love Jesus. All right? But why do the majority of people keep a different day? There is a, a reason for that. And it's because of this little horn. Now, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stay right here. Okay? All right, so keep your, keep your handouts with you, because in our next presentation, we're going to pick up on number seven and go into number eight to see if all of the characteristics fit, okay? So that is our next presentation. Now, next week, because we have the prayer, um, the fasting and prayer event, we will have that. So we will pick up two weeks from today, so make sure you put this in your calendars. Part two of Babylon is Fallen, um, this, um, what is it? What is, what's the, uh, the, the 18th? Yeah, February 18th. So be here and bring your, your your handouts. There'll be a second handout for your convenience. If you have not listened to the presentations on the first angel's message, you can find them on our YouTube channel. Just look for Nashville First Seventh Day Adventist Church. You'll also find them on Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, and Google. All right, let's all stand for our closing hymn. You know, when we think about this three angels messages. It reminds us that Jesus is coming soon. And in a little while, we're going home. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.